Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, give us humble hearts that would know your presence with us, hearts to receive that which you would have us hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When kings and queens are crowned in triumph, there is nothing humble about it. There are parades and celebratory feasts. There is great fanfare, pomp, and circumstance. Great crowds gather at the coronation to witness the new rulers. It is a joyous celebration. When Roman generals returned in victory from wars fought in far-off regions, there were triumphs held in their honor to celebrate these victories. They would usually ride their great war horses through the streets that were strewn with petals, cloaks, and leafy branches, and other items that were thrown on the ground to acknowledge their greatness and glorify them. They would be followed by their troops, slaves that had been captured in the conquered regions, and unique beasts also captured in those regions. All of this to revel in their victory and honor them and display their greatness to the crowds. In Jerusalem, this is what the crowds wanted to recognize, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But Zechariah 9.9 tells us, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus entered in humility on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The crowds expected a great king, one who has done signs and wonders, one who has even raised the dead. We call this scene in Mark 11 the triumphal entry, but those who were gathered there were not all of the same understanding of the triumph. The Lord Jesus had told his disciples in Mark 10, 33 to 34, on the road to Jerusalem, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is the third time in Mark that Jesus has told his disciples this. But we know that there is still confusion amongst his disciples about what Jesus means. Right after this, James and John approach Jesus to ask about sitting at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in his kingdom. Jesus responds that they do not know what they are asking. He then asks them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. In confidence, they answer that they are. Jesus tells them that they will drink of the cup, and they will be baptized with the same baptism. But it is not his to grant who will sit on the left and the right in the kingdom. The ten others are indignant at this, showing that they too don't understand yet. To clarify, Jesus tells them, 
the difference between the rulers of the Gentiles and themselves. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples still seem to think that he is the king who is to come that will throw off the oppressive Roman rulers and restore the kingdom of Israel. They have seen the signs, the lame healed, the deaf given hearing, the sight given and restored to the blind, and the dead raised. He is the son of David, who has come in the name of the Lord. We see in the account of the triumphal entry in John that there are two crowds that are gathered there to meet him. One has followed him from Bethany, who had witnessed the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and who came to Jerusalem, and the other came to Jerusalem to see both Jesus and Lazarus, that they had heard Jesus had raised from the dead. As he comes in riding on the colt, they make it clear that they are recognizing him as king, both by their words, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And by their actions of spreading their cloaks and leafy branches on the road. They had either seen the signs or heard of the signs. They too were expecting one who came in the name of the Lord to throw off the oppressive Roman rulers and restore the kingdom of Israel. All of this even got to Pilate because he asked Jesus if he is the king of the Jews. And he makes a sign to be placed on the cross that says, King of the Jews. When Jesus is mocked, the soldiers put on him a purple robe, a royal robe, and a crown of thorns. They salute him and kneel to him, beat him and strike him, and yell out, Hail, King of the Jews. The irony is the only people who truly understand the claim that he makes are the scribes and the priests when he comes before them in the castle. When the high priest asks, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus answers, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest tears his cloak and cries out, Blasphemy! He acknowledges Jesus' claim to be the incarnate Lord, equal to God, but he, along with those in the council, reject this claim. Then there was Jesus. He knew their hearts. He knew that these same people who were praising him today and celebrating the coming king would only days later reject him and call for him to be crucified. He knew this because he had already told the disciples this when he was going to Jerusalem and many times in the gospel. He knew this because he was intimately familiar with the words of the prophets. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his wounds, we are healed. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet in humble obedience, he entered Jerusalem in triumph, knowing that the ultimate triumph would come on the cross. He would become more than the king that they were looking for. He would not throw off the oppressive Roman government. Rather, he would throw off the oppressive rulers of this world in our slavery to sin. He would not restore the kingdom of Israel. Rather, he would establish the kingdom of heaven. He would become the king of kings, ruler of all, walking the path of obedience and suffering in humility to the cross. Paul writes beautifully about this humility of Christ in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The temptation is real for Jesus, and we know this because he asked the Lord to remove this cup, if at all possible, from him three times as he prays in the garden. We also know the will, he also knows the will of the Father and submits in obedience to it. In humility, he considers us better than himself. He then walks the lonely path to Golgotha to take the punishment we deserve. All those who were closest to him had abandoned him. Those who had praised him when he entered into Jerusalem were now not only calling for his death, but for his crucifixion. They wanted him to die a cursed death. Christ knew this lonely, forsaken path that was meant to be ours was his to take for us. In doing this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In the triumphal entry, he was celebrated by most of the crowd, but because of his triumph on the cross, everyone will bow the knee and confess with their mouths, willingly or unwillingly, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Our hearts are fickle. Sometimes we find ourselves with the crowd, desiring from Jesus something that he is not giving. We have our own plans for our lives to prosper, and our own understanding of a good life. Sometimes we make the gifts we are given greater treasures than that which is our greatest gift, our life in Christ. When things don't go to plan, we sometimes let anger get the best of us. When things don't go to the plan, we sometimes let self-pity get the better of us. One day we are praising the Lord with our hearts. We are celebrating his goodness. Then shortly thereafter, we are angry for the lot that we have been given. 
or we compare what we have been given to what others have been given, and in anger or self-pity, we ask, why? Or we stop looking at the cross and the victory that Christ has given to us, and we dwell on our sin and we pity ourselves. Our hearts are fickle, and the Lord knows that they are. He knows that they are, and he still went willingly to the cross to bear the pain, the shame, the mocking voices, the beatings, all because he loved us. And in humble obedience to the Father, he offered up his life for a sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice that would pay the penalty for our sin and our selfishness and wash us clean. Our hearts are fickle, but the Lord's love is greater than our fickle hearts. His love for us is greater than our sin. He rescues us from darkness and brings us into his marvelous light. Our hearts are prideful. Sometimes with James and John, we ask of the Lord in selfish ambition. We ask for a job or position that we think would be good for us, but is not in our hurt when we don't get it. We seek commemoration for our work, our charity, our generosity, and are angry when it isn't given, or we decide we won't do this again because we aren't appreciated like we think we should be. Humility is not easy. Even when we set out to do good work with good intentions, our pride can sneak up on us and turn those good intentions into selfish ambition or a pursuit of recognition. Our Lord's humility as seen in the triumphal entry and the lonely, shameful, painful walk to Golgotha is ours in Christ. Paul gives us the command to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, before describing the humility of Jesus. Our Lord's humility, his love, his obedience are all ours in Christ. We were baptized into Christ, and now we are a part of his body. We share in his death and resurrection. His life was more than an example for us to live by. Life was more than an example for us to live by. His life was our life lived in obedience. Abiding in Christ means abiding in his body, the church, and living out his life in ours. Paul says it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We are no longer slaves to sin, for we have died and risen to new life in Christ. As we enter Holy Week and prepare for the celebration of our resurrected Lord, let us reflect on the death we have died in Christ. Let us abide in Christ and remember the triumph of the cross. We are no longer dead in our trespasses, for the obedience of our Lord and his death is our obedience and our death. In Christ, we are made alive with him. We, as part of his body, have received his life in us. 
He, with his body and blood, continues to feed and nurture his church through the meal that unites us more fully and strongly to him each time we feast. Let us then grow in humility because it is ours in Christ. Let us then grow in love because it is ours in Christ. Let us then grow in obedience because it is ours in Christ. Remember this as you pray this week and as we come together this week to remember and experience our Lord's passion. Let us have this mind among ourselves and in humility and love consider one another better than ourselves knowing that we are Christ's. Let us have this mind among ourselves and in love and in humility consider our neighbors better than ourselves knowing that we are Christ's. Let us pour out our lives, knowing that it is Christ who lives in us, and abiding in him, we live and have life. He lives in us. Amen.